It's time to take the quiz. Five questions, five minutes a day, five days a week. Take the quiz every weekday at thequiz.fox and then listen to the quiz podcast to find out how you did. Play, share, and of course, listen to the quiz at thequiz.fox. All right, boys and girls, we are back with another edition of the Ben Dominich Podcast brought to you by Fox News. You can check out all of our podcasts at foxnewspodcast.com. I hope that you will rate, review, subscribe to this one, and share it with a friend if you find it of interest. Today, I have a conversation with Carol Roth. She is the author of a new book, You Will Own Nothing, Your War with a New Financial World Order and How to Fight Back. Carol is someone who has been within the financial world for quite a long time. Uh, She's an expert when it comes to understanding what's going on within it. And she speaks to a lot of the different challenges that we're facing, not just as a country, uh, but culturally when it comes to the kind of influence from globalist uh, entities that we have seen uh, really infect much of what goes on within the United States of America. Carol Roth, coming up next. The Fox News Rundown, a contrast of perspectives you won't hear anywhere else. Your daily dose of news twice a day. Featuring insight from top newsmakers, reporters, and Fox News contributors. Listen and subscribe now by going to foxnewspodcasts.com. Carol Roth, thank you so much for taking the time to join me today. I'm so happy to be here with you. So uh, the phrase, you will own nothing and you will be happy is something that I think is ubiquitous to the internet experience. You've now written a book that has at least some of that phrase as your title. Where did this idea really come from and how did it become something that was so ubiquitous to the conversation about our anticipated future? So probably like you, Ben, the first time I came across this was on Twitter you'll own nothing and you'll be happy. And it was said, oh, this is the World Economic Forum, which I happen to know is, you know, littered with the business and political elite. And I'm like, eh, you know, there's no way that these these elite people are predicting the end of private property by 2030. Someone must have pulled this out of context, as happens frequently, or had, you know, gotten it wrong. And it took very little research on my part to go in and view their top eight predictions for 2030. And it's a video with they say input from their global future councils and right there number one is you'll own nothing and you'll be happy and i'm like oh that seems kind of weird because as somebody who's advocated for wealth creation for more than a quarter of a century for every american you know i know that wealth comes from ownership you know specifically you want to have assets that can retain their value and appreciate in value so the idea that the elite now don't want you to have wealth creation opportunities and then the second piece of that, you'll be happy. They actually want you to buy into it and think that this is, you know, for your own good, um, was very interesting to me. So as I'm, you know, kind of going about my life and looking at all of these issues that are impacting middle and working class Americans in particular, things like social credit, things like the debasement of the dollar and the the inflation that we've been seeing, the potential for central bank digital currencies, the fact that Wall Street is now competing with you to buy a home, the fact that millennials aren't you know, generating wealth at the same rate that uh, you know the boomers and Gen X had before. You know, I, I'm looking at these things and I'm like, there's got to be a connection here. And I just couldn't quite 
get my arms wrapped around it. And then one day I'm just walking one, two, three steps and it just hit me like a lightning bolt. You will own nothing. And it, it really was the through thread that tied all of these different forces who have, you know, different objectives and are coming at us in different ways. It really tied the, the underlying thesis together. There's, uh, I, I don't often sort of invoke this, but I have uh, done it before on a, a couple of podcasts. There's this song uh, that I turn to uh, again and again from Father John Misty. I don't know if you're familiar with him. No. Um, but uh, it's called Total Entertainment Forever, a, a song from a couple of years ago. Uh, and, you know, he's this kind of folk rock, like uh, weird alt country guy. And um, the whole frame of the thing is is basically like a Futurama episode, mm. you know, because it starts with the idea of of um, uh, betting Taylor Swift every night in the Oculus Rift, <laughs> and it ends. Uh, and but it ends up with the idea that you know someday some future you know alien race will find us um, uh, in our homes, plugged into our hubs. <laughs> Uh, just just smiling away as the stories replay on the screen and saying and thinking, you know, this must have been a wonderful place. It's a it, it's a haunting song, but it also seems like certain people have taken that idea that don't date robots idea or, you know, whatever you want to call it <laughs> and applied it as actual policy. Like this is what people want. They just want to be in their pod and, and have things fed into them and, and, you know, exist in this nether world where they own nothing uh, and, uh, and just essentially function as human batteries. I, I, I mean, it seems like something that, you know, Alice Huxley would have rejected as being, you know, right, a little too right. extreme. Uh, yet that seems like what their actual policy is. Is it, where does that come from? Do they not understand that this seems ludicrous on its face? Yeah, it's so funny when you bring up Aldous Huxley, who I talk about in the book, as well yeah. as Orwell, you, you kind of start going like, this wasn't supposed to be a playbook. And in so many different <laughs> ways, it really does kind of turn out that way. I think part of the issue, it goes back to that, you know, meme or saying where it says, you know, good, uh, hard times create strong men and, you know, strong men create good times and good times create weak men and weak men create bad times. Mm -hmm. it, I feel like it's that we have lived through this, you know, historic, prosperous period that we, we've never seen before. And I think it's very difficult to pe for people to sort of imagine anything different. And so when you do have all of this, you know, prosperity and privilege and opportunity around you, it's kind of easy to take that for granted, just assume it'll be there and that you can do what what you want. So I feel like that's sort of been the underpinning. But then as we're sort of moving away from that, and, and we see the signposts that, you know, things today aren't necessarily, you know, looking as rosy as maybe they were before, um, our fiscal situation is challenging, the global financial stakes are, are shifting. I think for young people, you know, who have been trained on this, like they're trained for non-ownership, and they're trained for the ease. I do wonder how much of that is just the feeling that they aren't going to have the same opportunities. So mm -hmm. I need to disassociate myself from that now, you know, almost like a, a, you know, protecting yourself from rejection. So I don't get hurt. You know, when you have the millennials who are struggling for the American dream, the literal symbol of the American dream to buy a home, 
it's easier to just go, yeah, well, you know, I didn't really want to. I, I wanted to have this convenience that, you know, this way I don't have to do anything. And I just call my landlord and I can move around YOLO and, you know, Instagram and whatever. I think I don't think at the core people are like, no, I really don't want the opportunity to have the largest wealth creation asset across households in my portfolio. It's that they're worried that they're not going to be able to achieve that. So better to just come out and front run that and say, this is not what I want. And then if they change their mind, that's fine. But if they don't achieve that, then they won't feel as though they have failed or at least, you know, from an Instagram perspective, are presenting that front to the world. Mm-hmm. I don't, That's just sort of my thesis. Does that resonate with you at all? Yeah. Yeah. No, I, I definitely I definitely see that, especially in the in the I mean, the, the elder millennial generation has lived through so many different crises uh, and has taken so many different lessons from it many of them bad from my perspective about the the level of risk that they're willing yeah. to tolerate within the world um that certainly seems to be you know uh, an aspect of this that is uh you know a a real cultural uh culturally dominant force uh within the decisions that people make um i wanted to ask you about particularly your uh your portion of your chapter on the incredible shrinking dollar on uh, modern monetary theory, which you brand <laughs> the magic money tree. Um, I Modern monetary theory was something that was, uh, you know, coming up within the conversation uh, back, you know, much earlier in the days before, you know, the long time ago, meaning like, you know, 10 years ago, uh, <laughs> where, where people <laughs> were talking about this. Uh, in in a way that I felt was much more serious than it deserved. Um, unfortunately, I feel like a lot of the ideas that come out of it have flown, have, uh, you know, flown into this uh, current administration and the like. Uh, tell us a little bit about MMT, where it comes from, what its uh, essentials are, uh, and how we should understand it. Yeah, so to be fair, Magic Money Tree I adopted. I didn't actually make up the brand. I heard it somewhere and just thought that it was perfect. So credit to whoever came up with that. Um, but it, it's this really bizarre idea that you you have to be the kind of person that believes that, you know, unicorns fly and, you know, live on rainbows and, you know, they, you know, poop ice cream and those kinds of things in order to to think that this is reality. You also have to suspend any knowledge of the function of money and, and what, you know, what it stands for as a proxy of productivity. You know, they just seem to think, oh, well, I have a, a printing press. I can create dollars. And, you know, that's just a fun thing. And, you know, we'll just have more of them because, right, if you could do that, like everybody would already have done that. Um, but it, it's an idea that's never worked anywhere in the world before. And the idea is that if if you have fiat currency, which is currency that is printed by the government and its central bank, that is not backed by anything other than the quote unquote, good faith of the government, which really is the productivity and the belief in the American people and, and what it is that they're producing, that you can always print more money and pay for everything. And I say, you know, that's one of those things that 
is like true, I guess, in theory, but not if you put any context or reality around it. And the story that I share as an analogy is about my mom. Um, many years ago, she was diagnosed with leukemia and they were you know, deciding that they were going to treat it. And it was very aggressive and they did very aggressive radiation and it basically killed off all of her organs, um, but got the leukemia. And they're like, look, it's great. We got the leukemia. And it's like, mm -hmm. okay, but you killed her. So you, know, I don't really feel like that's a, a, a you know a resounding success for you it's kind of embarrassing and it's the same thing here it's like yes you can never default because you could always print more money but then you've rendered all of our money useless and mm -hmm. these mmt people who really Ben, have not gotten the ridicule that they deserved. I mean, they should be marched through the streets and everyone should, you know, point at them. They should be put in dunk tanks. We should throw balls <laughs> at them. You know, those kinds of things. Um, they've just, just gone quiet. Or mm. and, and I'm just waiting for a resurrection of, oh, well, that wasn't real modern monetary theory. But, you know, what, what it's happens? It's never truly been tried. No, it's never been tried. <laughs> that, that's not what I meant. I meant something else. But if you think about what happened... Um, particularly during COVID, but, you know, over the last 15 years of monetary policy with lots of money printing out of nowhere by the Fed, is that during COVID, we got this horrible slew of policies where they decided to spend all of this money and there was nobody to finance that. It's not like there was investor appetite to finance that. It's not like there was, if central banks have been lightening up on their treasury securities. And so, you know, who was going to be the one to stand by and purchase that debt? And it turned out it was the Federal Reserve. So they're making up money out of nowhere to, to purchase this debt. And what that does is that, you know, devalues all of our dollars, which we now have concrete proof of. We've lived through massive inflation, you know, since 2021. It's been up double digits um, on a recorded basis, which they've messed with that. So I would I would offer it's probably double, um, you know, the rates that they sort of project at the at the government level. And we see that, you know, there there's actually, you know, something that's tied to that money. You can't just go out and print securities. And MMT, they have some other things. They're like, oh, well, we can control inflation by raising taxes and all these other like fun things. But it just goes away from the principle of what do you think money is, right? Money is, is a unit of account. It's a medium of exchange. It's a store of value. And at the end of the day, it's a proxy for productivity. If you put in more dollars and you don't have the productivity, each one of those dollars is then at least worth less on a, a proportional basis. And I would offer that on with a compounding effect, actually even uh, worse than that. So this has been, like you said, something that has infiltrated um, every level of the Democratic Party. And the fact that we have, you know, massive financial literacy in this country is why when people are like, oh, I want my stimulus, I want my Donnie dollars, I want my Biden bucks. There were people like me going, no, 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 it's a trick. It's a trick. You're going to end up paying, you know, seven to $10,000 for the rest of your life for, you know, taking that money now. And people are like, no, no, I need my money. And so they're able to get away with it. And I'm really worried that the same thing is going to happen with a central bank digital currency that, you know, in order to sort of trick people into getting a very centralized currency that the Fed and the government would have absolute control over to the dollar basis, know everything you do and be able to stop you from using it, they'll do the same thing. Oh, I'll give you a hundred uh, digital dollars, Ben, if you just give me one dollar, 
you'll be rich. And everyone will be like, ah, oh, that's great. Um, not realizing the implications. The uh, You're reminding me of the SNL sketch where yes, which Dan I talk Aykroyd about in the book, plays yes. Jimmy Carter, which you talk about in the book. Um, you know, wouldn't, you, wouldn't you love to... <laughs> Go to go to work, you know, in a fifty thousand dollar car, you know, and that kind of thing. Also, so we're wear a thirty thousand dollar suit. Everyone will be a millionaire. It'll exactly. be great. Yeah. Um, uh, let's step back for a minute. You, uh, so you describe yourself as a reformed eye banker, recovering actually. Recovering, I'm recovering. <laughs> I did. I did reform reformed. my bad ways. I'm just trying to recover um, from them. Uh, where was the point where you were kind of? Uh, I think I'm a fairly early follower of your Twitter feed. Where was a point where you actually started to sour on the industry that you were a part of? So when I joined investment banking, I'm one of those people who had absolutely no idea what that meant. You know, I came from a blue collar family. Neither of my parents went to college. I just sort of stumbled into getting into Wharton and then asked all the people who were there, like, so what do you do? I like business. I like finance. I like the stock. Like, what do I do with my life? And, you know, that was one of the the quick ways to pay down college debt um, because my dad was at least financially savvy about that and said, if you're going to take on this crazy debt, you have to pay it down. So investment banking just kind of came up as a good thing for someone with ADD who likes to work on a bunch of things at the same time. You can work on lots of deals. And it's crazy because at the time, and I know I look, you know, far younger, you probably all would think that this was when I was 12 years old, but I was actually graduated from college in the mid nineties. Um, you know, at that time, I was actually going to ask, I was going to, I was not going to ask how old you were, but I was going to ask what, what was the biggest like star to come out of your Wharton class? That's a great way to determine where you actually come in the Wharton lifetime. Yeah. So I, so I, because some people will say, oh, I was best friends with, you know, the, the, you know, the person who started Warby Parker or something like that. So so I was a, I was a year behind Elon at Wharton. So he was, he was there as a, as a year older than me. Um, so do you remember anything about him? No, no, I don't. <laughs> you know, I could, I could maybe, I could maybe project it like I saw him in Steinberg Dietrich. No, no, no. But, it's it's yeah. uh, people don't people don't remember Bill Gates except from poker uh, parties at at Harvard. So I yeah, wouldn't be surprised. Yeah, well, I was I was kind of a nerd too, so I I didn't I kind of stayed focused on my yeah. stuff. Uh, but at any rate, you know, when I came out in 1995 and, you know, you go into corporate finance and you help companies raise money and you look at the, the markets, there was none of the Fed and central bank shenanigans, you know, at the level that we're seeing now. I mean, certainly you had Greenspan, you know, doing the interference during Black Monday. Um, but after that, like there, there wasn't sort of this like, you know, crazy policy like we've seen the last 15 years. So it's not like everybody was sitting around their TV being like, what's the Fed going to do? Are they going to move, you know, mm-hmm. 25 basis? Like, that never entered the conversation. And in fact, you know, some of these things that we hear now, like the dot plot and the turnover reports, like these are only things that have been only around for maybe like 15 years or so. Mm-hmm. So it was a very different time. Um, and, you know, I was just really focused on helping cool companies grow and get access to capital and do mergers and things like that. But I really never wanted to be the world's best investment banker and, you know, kind of eventually moved away from it. 
Now, funny enough, I was not into politics at all. Like I knew nothing, didn't care, didn't read the news, like like totally uninformed other than, you know, kind of the business news that I was following. And when 2012 came around and I had started doing TV a couple of years before then, um, Mitt Romney obviously was the, the candidate at that time against President Obama. And one of the networks was like, well, we need somebody who can explain what private equity is. Because, you know, this is early times on the Internet. Twitter was, you know, a very different place. Um, you know, you, you didn't have as many sort of experts running around. Like, you know what that is. You can come in. And so it was like they're asking me all these political questions. And I just made jokes because I had absolutely. No idea, although I could explain the private equity piece and the auto bailouts and all the technical stuff that other people couldn't. So that's kind of what got me into it. And then once I, you know, saw what was going on, I'm like, holy smokes. And then as you know, and I've always been a small business advocate, you know, that's something that came out of my investment banking time. But then as I, you know, kind of went through the small business cycle, the political cycle, you know, saw what happened during the Great Recession financial crisis, and I started seeing these things, like the picture just became very, very clear. And, you know, over the past 10 years have just been absolutely disgusted by what I've seen in terms of this, you know, what I think is a very intentional wealth transfer using the the Fed and, and government policy from mm-hmm. Main Street to Wall Street. And, um, you know, it's I'm just the kind of person who can't sit by, even though. I may benefit from that in some way and may have benefited in terms of being an asset holder. It's just not okay by me. You know, this is the American dream is something that should be preserved for everyone. I was able to come from that blue collar family and seize that opportunity and everybody else should be able to have that same opportunity. When you look at the, you know, obviously within the the realm of, of U.S. political leadership, There's a great number of people, particularly in the House of Representatives, who have small business experience. Um, They've owned companies. They've been able to build, you know, small firms and, and, uh, you know, networks of stores and the likes, franchises. Um, You know, you have those people who are who have come up, you know, basically with small level investments and been able to build themselves up to the point where they were viewed as community leaders and then they get elected to Congress. You, what you don't have is a lot of financial expertise. You don't have the kind of, of expertise that you have or that those from your world have. And so because of that, a lot of the criticisms of the current way that things are going uh, come from a position of inclination but not knowledge um, where they're, they feel like something about this picture is wrong, but they don't really know how to deal with it. So my question to you is, if you were standing in front of the, you know, House Republican Conference, or really just any gathering of of members of either party who would be interested in trying to find solutions that actually back up the uh, the small business owners and the uh, community, uh, you know, economic leaders in ways uh, that are designed to help them. Uh, what would you advise them to do? What are the biggest priorities that they ought to bring either via legislation, via oversight or elsewise, uh, because they do feel like they're getting screwed, but they are not really sure how. How long is the rest of this podcast? <laughs> you, you, no, I'm, I'm happy, to, I'm I'm happy to ask kidding. a question. Have you go for 10 minutes? Yeah, but, yeah. Uh, go so- ahead. 
So I think there are a number of, of things. I mean, at the end of the day, the, the, the easiest way to sort of encapsulate it is removing the barriers to wealth creation and also getting some fiscal responsibility at the government level. So, you know, we have sort of two sides, you know, with small business owners and some of it is federal, but a lot of it is state and local. It's just getting out of their way. And they have so much red tape and, um, you know, barriers and fees and stupid things that they have to jump through that make it very different, difficult to compete. At the federal level, you know, it's more of the regulatory capture that happens with the big companies that, you know, sound good, like you're trying to protect everyone, but then make it very hard again for the small businesses to be able to compete. Um, but just, you know, there's some basic, basic things, you know, for the the government right now, our public debt to GDP is at about 125%. The IMF and other um, you know, financial entities who've studied this before, and they say, like, where does this top out? Where does it become unsustainable? It's always in the 70 to 80% range. And the Treasury and the CBO have said the fiscal path is unsustainable. And I have a hard time believing that you know, Congress doesn't know this. I just don't think that there are enough people that have the fortitude. I mean, we had this this fight with the debt ceiling, and I thought we were going to maybe actually, you know, certainly not get enough, but get a real path. And they did absolutely nothing and then tried to sell it to us as if they did something. And I think that's always been my my sort of problem with the GOP is that they have these great ideas and they never have the fortitude to to push them through where the Democrats have really terrible ideas and they're awesome at jamming them through. And so that be, that comes, a, you know, sort of a really bad imbalance. So, you know, they got to get their fiscal house in order and they have to be honest. And I know I know why they don't want to be. I mean, we saw what happened in France when they said we're going to raise the retirement age from 62 to 64 a few weeks ago. And you know everyone decided to burn down Paris. So. I get it. This is not a pleasant conversation, but we're moving in the wrong direction. And so somebody's got to, you know, just stand up here and, and explain to people, like, you know, all these promises we made, well, you know, the spending, like this, this doesn't, this I, I, I know doesn't that work. we were self-deprecating about your age before, but I just want to point this out. Um, and, and I know that this offends some of my listeners when I do point it out, because I've done it before. Um, the, greatest generation in the history of America at redistributing to itself financial capability at the cost of younger generations boomers. is the baby boomers. Yes. They and I'm not a boomer. Over... I'm, I'm squarely Gen X. I know. So I, I know you're squarely that, yes. Gen X <laughs> and I'm an elder millennial and I'm telling you it, like our people and everybody below us, we are all getting screwed by them. They have yes. all, they have done yes. it over and over again yes. through multiple methods. They Correct. continue to do it and they have the most, absurd and and uh, pompous attitude about what is owed them in in ways that you know for a generation that accomplished essentially nothing that stood on the shoulders of its prior generations <laughs> that all they have is essentially 1970s music to recommend them you know and that's it it's it's just not it's it is it's absurd it's abhorrent and the fact that we have continued to let them get away with it when look i mean Retirement ages, in particular, they, this is a math problem. You 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 know you up this. Tom Coburn, you know, uh, uh, you know, God rest his soul. You know, years ago proposed that we just up this by a month, 
every year, you know, for the next, you know, uh, X years, and we solve this problem, you know, and, uh, and the problem is that they reacted to that, uh, as if you would, you know, said you were going to, you know, electrocute them all. Uh, and now the, the upshot of it is that they're denying it to their grandchildren and they're, and they're completely robbing, you know, uh, another generation of a positive American future. And then they look around and say, well, why aren't people as positive as they used to be? And they, cause you will go, are, they will own nothing, Ben. Amen. Exactly. Amen. You're saying exactly. you're, you're just, you're so, exactly so, laying the whole thing out here. So, uh, well, uh, just to, to, to switch back to, to one of the questions about small businesses, when it comes to the banking side of things, uh, are we are we overbanked or are we underbanked in terms of what uh, you view as uh, the resources for community lending? Because that's something that you know we obviously got into a little bit uh, earlier in the Biden administration in terms of an argument. I'm just curious as to your opinion. So I would say, in a sense, we're underbanked because during the Great Recession financial crisis, when they put the Dodd-Frank rules in place to try yeah. to protect the big banks that do all the crazy things that they do, what it did is it made it so onerous and so difficult to be a small lender that those businesses went away. A bunch of them folded. You didn't get the same amount of starts. And those are the businesses that lend to the truly small businesses. And of the you know 32 point whatever it is six or seven million small businesses that we have in this country the majority of them have no employees like it's 90 something percent of them have no employees and then the next level or have just a handful and then it kind of goes up to you know you get twenty one thousand big businesses so we're mm -hmm. talking really small companies there um and so you know these big banks you know, they just don't want to be bothered. And I understand for them, you know, it's a cost of doing business. They do better with, with big clients, but we've now kind of taken away that access. Um, but, you know, it's more than just access to capital because not every small business owner can take out a loan, even has that sort of financial wherewithal. It's yeah. the stupid things like I have a small business. Uh, my sister works for me. She works at home on her computer and I have to buy workers' compensation insurance in Illinois. And Illinois brags, um, yes, we have the most, you know, options for workers' compensation insurance out of anyone else. And I'm like, that's not a good thing. That's not, that's not a good a statement. thing. <laughs> That's, you're not saying what you think you're saying. Um, so, you know, it's all of these additional costs that make it harder to do business and just, you know, mm -hmm. stupid hoops that you have to jump through. That, again, if you wanted small businesses to thrive, you know, lending is is one thing, but it, it's, you know, a lot of the businesses, especially service ones that don't need that debt or couldn't take it on, um, would just do better to not have, you know, stupid rules and regulations. And they're moving in the opposite direction. You know, they're trying to ram through things like um, the PRO Act, where they want to make independent contractors as employees. That would kill small businesses. Yes, it would kill absolutely. the gig economy. So, you know, being very focused on your work, your choice, and getting everybody out of the way there would be a huge thing. Another thing, as you talk about with millennials, is, you know, we have this whole debate over forgiving student loans. And we, you know, we shouldn't be doing that. We shouldn't be making other taxpayers pay for other people's student loans. 
But we also shouldn't enable the largest predatory lender in the entire world, the U.S. government, who's preying on 17 and 18 year olds who don't know what they're signing up and transferring wealth with the imprimatur, from them. with the imprimatur of high end institutions. Well, that's what I'm saying. Their, they're, yeah. Yes, they're they're transferring wealth to colleges and administrators for degrees that don't give them a return on investment. And then what happens? Then you're saddled with debt so you can't start making the down payment on a house or you can't start investing in stocks or investing in a business. It is a financial scam. How is there no Republican that is just standing up and going, we're getting the government out of of student lending. We're going to have an underwriting process. We're going to allow for bankruptcy just like everybody else. And oh, by the way, colleges, you need to have some skin in the game here. I mean, this is not Again, rocket science. These are very easy things, and they want to well, talk around the edges it, it, and not do so, anything. Well, this, but this, Carol. I mean, this is one of the reasons why I'm so frustrated with it because they can com- they can complain till the cows come home. Yes. about how the the higher ed in America has become, you know, a a wokeified, uh, you know, CRT based, uh, DEI based sort of agenda, uh, and yet they're unwilling to actually pull the trigger on any of the things that actually make those institutions perform differently or actually question their own books or say, wait a minute, why are we writing off your taxes, you know, on this again, given the number of people that you actually educate who can find a job at the end of, of, of the process? It's, it's absurd. Why, nobody... why, are we su- why are we subsidizing Harvard, which I call a hedge fund with a university attached to it, 100%. or maybe it's an indoc- indoctrination camp attached to it? Like, wh- why are we giving them, you know, millions of dollars every year and grants and other things. I mean, it's, it's the entire system is so backwards and it is the the young people who are losing out on the American dream under the guise that they're going to be better off. So there, there are yeah. lots of simple things. We need we need some, you know, accountability for Fed powers here. We need to restrict. A lot of people want to end the Fed. I don't want to end the Fed. I want to restrict their powers because the worst thing that would happen is that you take those powers away from the Fed and you give them to Congress. It's the only thing that could be worse. Uh, that so that we have be to, worse. Yeah, we have to be clear. <laughs> but I think your point is so important. Why is it that you have people marching for all of these kind of issues, but the financial foundation, the thing that's going to make or break the ability to even talk about these issues, mm-hmm. nobody's marching. Nobody's marching for reforming you know, the, the college system. Nobody's marching to reform the Fed. Like, like what's, I mean, back in the day, back when we had uh, Saturday Night Live that was, you know, talking about things like inflation and, and currency and money printing, you know, there was a larger awareness of this issue. And I feel like, you know, everyone here can identify like, oh, I know there's something wrong, but like, mm-hmm. I'm so far removed from what's happening that I don't even know what to do. So you have a, a whole chapter in your book, on uh, the threat of central bank uh, digital currencies, yes, uh, and I certainly think that you know you're you're right over the target on that. Uh, but uh, in in the interest of of you know my listeners, perhaps uh, not to insult them, but you know let's let's assume let's let's talk to sort of the median listener here. Uh, what are the things that you would like them to know? about the threat represented by such a currency um, and also what they should know just generally about these digital currencies that they, they certainly have, have a sort of base level of understanding of, of what they are, 
but not much more than that. Yeah, so I think that the first thing to understand is that this isn't a conspiracy or this that is not a will, will never happen thing because we had the Fed, the New York Fed run a pilot program yep. that they just reported on with 12 different financial institutions um, at the wholesale level. So bank to bank, not retail facing, meaning at the consumer level where you're going to use it to go pay for things. But as we know from government policy, once you open that door and say that's okay, they always expand. They always so, run right through it. And on the retail front, we have had the G7 countries come out with their principles for retail facing CBDC. So you don't come out with a principle framework if it's not something that has crossed your mind a few times. So that's the, the reality of it. What a CBDC is, and the best way I can explain it is like, imagine some physical form factor of a dollar that has a microchip in it. And every time you you go to the store, that microchip is scanned. And then the Fed and the government goes, oh, who's shopping today? Oh, it's Ben. Ben, I don't like what you said on Twitter yesterday. You were mean about the government. Let's not <laughs> let him buy things today. Or, you know, from a, a broad-based standpoint, we have this inflation problem that, oh, by the way, we saw, we caused, but we're not going to mention that. So to deal with inflation, we have to destruct demand. We have to, to curtail spending. Oh, well, we have control over everybody's money. So we just won't let you have access to it. And then you can't spend things. Or Carol, you, you know, like to eat burgers, which are delicious. And I do like to eat burgers. And <laughs> we have decided that that's not good for our green policies. Cows are bad. Our private jets are totally fine. But the cows are the problem. And so you have hit your burger limit this month. And so I'm sorry, you can't pay for that. And sounds dystopian, sounds crazy, but we've lived through COVID now. So, you know, none of this should sound as crazy. If you told me this 10 years ago, I probably would have been, eh, you know, it seems far-fetched. does not seem far-fetched anymore. So you you have it, I, this. I mean, I mean just, to, just to put this in tangible terms, it's sort of saying, uh, Carol, you can't buy a burger today, but you can buy bananas. You know, it, it's, it, it's, 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 and check them out for my preferred crony over here who owns exactly. the banana stand. Exactly. Michael, what, what could a banana cost, Michael? $10? <laughs> $20? So, yeah, so that, that is the level of control. And what they are doing, or what I believe they're doing, is that there's this interest in cryptocurrency, particularly Bitcoin and, and, and Ethereum. And with Bitcoin, the whole sale of that is decentralization. The idea is we don't trust the Fed and central banks and the government with our money. They have done you know wrong by us. They've done wrong by you know, keeping the money stable for the world. And so we want something that isn't you know, isn't able to be manipulated. And I'm not going to argue whether or not that thesis is true. I'm just going to tell you that that's the thesis yeah. of it. And so there's been a lot of issue in cryptocurrency. The more people find alternative ways to transact and make the dollar less important, then the central banks lose their power, right? They don't like that. They want to be able to control the money and control the people as much as possible. So they want to conflate the idea, oh, cryptocurrency is scary because, you know, we've had some of these exchanges that have been frauds and there's been a lot of issues in it. But trust us and the government. We've been so good to you and so great with the money. We'll give you a digital type currency, not understanding that it's not crypto. It's not decentralized. 
And, you know, they're going to use that confusion to get buy-in. They're going to use the bribery that we talked about earlier. I'm going to give you a hundred of these if you give me one and you're going to be rich. They're going to use things like controlling inflation. They're going to potentially even use universal basic income. You want everybody, you know, the government to give everybody money, which... I don't know where they're getting that from. The government doesn't have any money. Uh, they just have our money uh, and the ability to debase it. So, you know, you sign up for UBI with this digital dollar and then we'll get it. But if you don't, then you can't get it. So those are the kind of tricks that I'm worried about with people. From a protecting yourself standpoint, I think it's important to think about this now in the same way you think about what happens if my house is going to burn down. You don't expect that maybe to happen. You know, there's a possibility of it, but you still come up with your escape plan and you still buy insurance because you don't want to be in a situation where the house is on fire and then you're trying to like face it in that moment. It's a very bad time to try to buy insurance and it's a very bad time to try to have an escape plan. So you want to have that for CBDC as well. What happens if the government does centralize control, which by the way, requires congressional approval. So we have a, a way to, to try and stop that if we can, but you know, our, our efforts on things have, we don't have a great track record, but we should put that out there. But like, what would you do? You know, would you mm -hmm. use, whether it's crypto or, you know, I'm more of a hard asset person, you know, things like precious metal, silver and gold. Do you have people in your community that you can barter with? Have you kind of said, okay, you're the person with the chickens and the eggs and the burgers. You're the doctor. You know, you're, you're like, what, where are these things that I need just in case I get outside this system and I, I'm on the bad side and I can't access my money or they say there's a glitch, you know, or, I mean, we know how the government runs everything, you know, I have to wait in line for 12 years to, digitally to get my money, like whatever it is. What have you done to prepare and think through that scenario? And, you know, some people may joke and go, you sound like a prepper. And mm -hmm. I would I would argue with that. I think there's a nuance here. I think there's a difference between being a prepper and being a prepared, although there's nothing wrong with being a, pre a prepper. I'm just not one. Being a prepper is living this as a lifestyle. Like every day, this is your lifestyle. You think about this constantly. You, you know, you live amongst the like, I'm going to make sure I'm self-sufficient. Being prepared is just having that plan so that you don't have to worry about it every day and you can go about your life. And then when you have to deal with it, you have to deal with it. So I, mm -hmm. I lean to the side of be prepared. If you want to go you know, deeper than that, you know, hallelujah to, to each man his own. Um, but it, it is important to think through these things because we've had such stability on a relative basis and prosperity. I just don't think people are prepared for things to shift and while I can't predict a time duration for you, I wish I could, but if I could, I'd be on a yacht in the Mediterranean and not having this wonderful podcast with Ben. Um, <laughs> you know, if I could ha have those predictions, it'd be great, but we don't know. It could be 12 months. It could be 12 years. It could be 50 years. They could start something. It could go away. There could be all kinds of chaos, but you just need to start with the behaviors and the planning today. You know, I, I think that that's great advice. And I hope that I hope that people hear it. Uh, it's it's a very important, I think, argument that you're making in this book and one that I hope that people receive uh, in terms of the reality of what we can expect from uh, these various world leaders and what they are expecting. It's important to understand what your leaders are anticipating about the world that they're going to inhabit and the world that they intend for you to inhabit. So, Carol Roth, thank you so much for taking the time 
to join me today and to walk us through all of this. Thank you so much. It was a great conversation. And I think just to, to add on to what you said, you know, the elite may want you to own nothing, but folks like Ben and I, we want you to own everything. And that's why we want to empower you with the knowledge and give you that playback to a playbook to fight back. Thank you, Carol. Thanks. More of the Ben Dominish podcast right after this. So I find it interesting that we have uh, some of this poll data that we are looking at today uh, from the New York Times and from other entities uh, that show uh, Donald Trump significantly in the lead nationally. Uh, there are numerous polls to this extent uh, that uh, you know uh, deliver the idea that uh, pre- former President Trump is you know thirty to forty percent, uh, thirty to forty points, I should say, up on uh, Ron DeSantis, the governor of Florida, uh, and anybody else who seeks to challenge him. This is the thing that I think is is worth noting. This type of uh, dominance is not something that we typically see in presidential politics. It's a historical uh, from. Uh, any kind of perspective that does not include incumbents. So essentially, uh, former President Trump is being treated as an incumbent, uh, even though he is not one. Uh, And I think that the second part of this that's very interesting is that there is a significant portion of the Republican Party. uh, In the New York Times poll, it's 25%. You know, others will have different numbers. But essentially, a chunk that is very, very anti-Trump to the point that they have honestly already said uh, to a lot of these pollsters that they will vote for Joe Biden over Donald Trump if those are the two nominees. Now, I don't know how much faith to put into these numbers. It's very early yet. Uh, they're national numbers. They're not you know, confined to a state. I certainly think that Ron DeSantis has a very good chance of winning in Iowa uh, just based on his uh, early performance and focus on the state. Uh, And, you know, there's no real reason to believe that that's impossible or off the table for him. At the same time, I think that this is kind of an inflex moment where if you are going to see one of these other candidates take off and really make a run of it, uh, you know, position themselves in kind of a solid third uh, or even contend with DeSantis uh, to be the second place person, I think that that would be happening already. And I think one of the reasons that it isn't happening is that none of these other candidates really are connecting with voters uh, to any great degree. They're really not uh, able to kind of uh, you know send their message in ways that cut through a lot of this BS. Unfortunately, until that happens, I think we're going to end up in a situation where you end you, you have essentially two candidates vying for this uh, job and one who's well well ahead of the other. Now, does this mean that we're have a foregone conclusion of a Trump-Biden contest, a repeat of 2020? Uh, Not necessarily, but I do think that it's much more likely than not. Uh, And, uh, you know, until there's some kind of sign that the either the legal battles or, you know, the debates or something like that don't go the former president's way, uh, he is the likeliest candidate for the GOP. What does that mean? Well, I think that we have to analyze what it means going forward, you know, not just at that level, but 
also at you know down ticket uh, battles, especially when it comes to the U.S. Senate, where Republicans are very optimistic, uh, but where the, the simple fact is that the nomination of the former president uh, does not do them any favors when it comes to uh, dealing with the challenges that they face. I'm Ben Dominich. You've been listening to another edition of the Ben Dominich Podcast. We'll be back soon with more to dive back into the fray. Listen ad-free with a Fox News Podcast Plus subscription on Apple Podcasts. And Amazon Prime members can listen to this show ad-free on the Amazon Music app. Jason in the House, the Jason Chaffetz Podcast. Dive deeper than the headlines and the party lines as I take on American life, politics, and entertainment. Subscribe now on foxnewspodcast.com or wherever you download podcasts.